morning, good afternoon, good evening, and welcome to People Add Value Experience. Today, I have the pleasure and honor of having a discussion with Billy Schleifer. Not only is he an awesome person, he, he also happens to be my cousin. So a little bit about uh, Billy before I let him jump in is he went to the College of Music, also known as Berkeley College of Music. He is and has produced and managed artists um, as well as bands. He's been an audio engineer and still dabbles on the side. He's a world-renowned musician. He played in Australia. A <laughs> uh, serial entrepreneur, has multiple businesses. Um, he also now teaches uh, private musicians and artists on the side with music and music business and so on. Uh, but at the end of the day, most importantly, he is a musician. So welcome and to PAVE, Billy. We're very excited to have this discussion and we're gonna jump in. What's happening, cuz? Hey, good things, good things. Um, so what I'd like to do is just start off on talking through sort of just how we met, you know, in general, because you would think at the end of the day that family's family and you guys all meet up, but we very have disparate family members all over the world. Uh, but there was one time in our life that we actually uh, sunk up, if you will, and met somewhere. So I just wanted you to talk a little bit about that. Sure. So. Um, I had a, I was in an Air Force family, so traveled around a lot. I was born in Germany. My mom was originally from Korea, and uh, my father was originally from Pennsylvania, uh, as is your your dad. And um, and my parents were going through a bit of a split back when I was, I think, in the fifth grade. And so uh, your family kindly took uh, my mom, my sister, and I in. And uh, so I was in fifth grade. Uh, that would have, I don't forget how old you, so I'm 45 now. How old are you? 43 in July. Okay, gotcha. So you're not that far behind. So not yeah, we moved, we moved to, uh, we moved to Beeville, Texas. And uh, we moved there from uh, Korea, I believe. I believe it was Korea, South Korea. And uh, yeah, so uh, I didn't really get to know many of my aunts and uncles prior because I had lived overseas much of my early life. And uh, yeah, so all of a sudden we're in Texas and and uh, I remember Beeville. I remember the radio stations. I remember the schools. <laughs> I remember getting paddled in school in Beeville. <laughs> so uh, my, my first meeting, I remember uh, your mom, Aunt Deanna. Uh, I remember she brought this this pitcher of sweet tea out. And that was the first time I had ever had sweet tea. And I remember looking um, while I was drinking this sweet tea and I said, I think there's something in my tea. And I think it was like a, like a bug of some sort. And, uh, yeah. So that was, and that I'll never forget that. That's that, that's stuck in my mind to this day. Yeah. That's, that's pretty much how Texas is. If there's not a bug on you, it's in you or, or in your <laughs> beverage or food or something. And, uh, and of course I remember, I remember you, your voice was, you had a significantly higher pitch to your voice than you do these days. Well, it's funny because I find that I have a high-pitched voice now, so I can only imagine what I sounded like, <laughs> like Alvin and the Chipmunks or something like that back in the day. <laughs> Thank God for puberty. That's <laughs> that's a good thing. That was, that, was, that was my earliest memory of how we met. Yeah, thanks. That's great. Um, so, yeah, so I wanted to jump in, uh, really discuss a little bit of the background about you um, and just give yourself sort of some free reign and, and talk about, you know, however long back or far back you want to go. Um, and then just sort of how you got to where you're at now. Oh boy. Uh, let's see. I guess the cliff notes outline would look something like this. Uh, I was born in Germany on a uh, military installation, uh, Landstuhl Army Medical Center. And that's kind of a famous spot because that's where they uh, typically bring um, our dead and wounded soldiers um, uh, prior to bringing them back to the United States, which is the next stop would be Dover, Delaware, which I also lived there right after I lived in Germany. Um, again, my father was in the Air Force, so I just remember moving every year, two years, three years. Um, from Delaware, I believe I lived in South Dakota, in Rapid City, um, and then Texas at some point, I think in San Antonio, and then went to uh, the Yokota Air Force Base in Japan. Uh, where I went to, uh, you know, element parts of elementary school, and then South Korea, 
um, and then finally uh, came back to the United States. And then after uh, I was staying with uh, with you guys, um, my family kind of got back together, and we lived in uh, Hawaii. So that was my first time back, or that was my first time in, uh, uh, I guess the, or no, not the first time. I went to kindergarten in the public school system here, but then uh, in Hawaii. So from there, my parents decided to, you know, officially split up and call it a day and <clears throat> ended up moving to southern New Hampshire where I went to high school. Um, and it was a kind of a skater, you know, troublemaker. Um, not not too much trouble, but, you know, it's just like any old typical teenage kid. Just enough. Just enough. <laughs> just enough. Um, and then uh, I started playing the guitar at about age of 15 and really enjoyed it. Although I never thought anything that was going to be very serious from it. Um, it was just kind of a hobby. And, uh, you know, initially had my sights set, set on being a, uh, in law enforcement. So I was going wow. to go to college for my criminal justice degree and had these aspirations to be a state trooper. <laughs> wow. And, uh, and so that, uh, that was the plan. And the year that I, uh, the summer after I graduated high school, I was involved in a very bad car wreck. And I was pretty traumatic. And at that point, I realized, you know, you can make all the, the best plans to, to live a certain type of life, but um, it can change very quickly. And right. so I figured, uh, you know, with my near-death experience that the, um, um, what I wanted to do life that, at that point was whatever I wanted. <laughs> so, yep. Uh, yep. and regardless of what, uh, regardless of what, um, I guess society told me that I should do or my parents or anything else. Um, and I, uh, one of my, or not one of my, my, my best friend at the time, um, you know, we, we played guitar together. Uh, his name is Michael Andrade. Um, he, he was going to Berkeley college of music. And so my plan was to, to kind of, uh, work, save up some money, and then go to Berkeley. So uh, when I was about 20, I got accepted to Berkeley, um, really worked hard at uh, developing my skill to get into there, uh, studied under a private instructor who was a teacher out of Berkeley. This is the Berkeley College of Music in Boston, by the way, not to be confused with the, uh, the Berkeley here in California. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, uh, yeah, so, so I got accepted into Berkeley and then uh, Mike decided to drop out. So that was kind of interesting. <laughs> decided, decided to, if I remember correctly, you know, uh, his, his family only had enough money to send one of their kids to college at a time. So he, he opted to, to drop out so his sister could go to college. Wow. Yeah. And um, so I went to Berkeley and I was all by myself down there and I was 20 years old. So I was a little bit older than every, you know, a little bit older than the typical student body that came in, although Berkeley had a wide range of, of ages for students. And uh, lo and behold, it turns out that I was pretty good. I was pretty good at music. <laughs> um, you know, I was, I was kind of a C, a C student in high school. Um, you know, did sports, did, did a little bit of this, a little bit of that. But, but when I went to Berkeley, um, you know, the only professional sports team they had were the chain-smoking team out in front of them. <laughs> it called, the, called the Berkeley Beach. There was probably always, at least at any point in the day, at least 200 people out in front of there just smoking <laughs> so i was definitely a fish out of water when i went there but i, I did really well um and uh about halfway through uh i was always yeah, already performing doing things and um and then i decided to switch my degree over into business um because you know who needs a who needs a degree to perform right so i wanted to have i wanted a fallback plan um, so I took, uh, I decided to switch my uh, major in a music business and, uh, gr you know, graduated magna cum laude at, uh, wow. um, is that how you pronounce it? Magna cum laude or loud? Sure. Listen, you're asking the wrong person for that. <laughs> something or other. Um, but anyways, I did really well. And, um, and then of course, uh, right after Berkeley, um, you know, the rest is sort of history got, you know, got into bands, um, and you know so what was like the genre of music that like one you started off with and then two sort of the bands played like did it lean more one way or the other as far as rock or jazz or uh definitely not jazz uh even though <laughs> jazz school um but i i was always a rock and roll guy 
close to being a metalhead. I was really into like prog rock and classic rock. Um, and my initial thing was I would like to, you know, be in a famous prog rock band. Of course, <laughs> if you know anything about bands in prog rock like Rush or like uh, Dream Theater, uh, it's not exactly a wide market uh, for those types <laughs> of audiences. Um, and so I remember doing this, this is kind of a funny moment. I remember doing a show. Now, the reason I picked up the guitar going, you know, going back into 94, but 93 or 94, the reason I picked up the guitar was because I wanted to be a rock star. I wanted to be like Slash. I wanted to be, um, you know, like Kurt Cobain or whatever. Um, and then I remember at Berkeley, it all, it, all it became about was, uh, you know, tech, super technical stuff and, and being the best technical master of my instrument. And I remember I did a, a, a dream theater show at Berkeley and I remember looking out into the crowd and it was nothing but a bunch of judgmental dudes staring at me. <laughs> and I was like, man, this is not, this is, this isn't what I thought rock and roll was. Um, and then I remember my buddy, uh, Eduardo, this Italian virtuoso, he said, Bill, you got to listen to this band, you too. And, uh, and we went to, we went, saw, I saw you two perform in Boston in 2001 wow. and it was, it was the most amazing. It was right after, after September 11th. It was almost like a religious experience. Um, and that's when I got into playing more normal or contemporary or pop music or pop rock or whatever you want to call it. Um, and that's, you know, that's, that would, I guess would be the start of my professional career. Uh, basically playing into uh, any type of project um, that was related to stuff that you heard on the radio, essentially. Wow. And then I guess from there, um, I followed, a, followed a, a girl out to L.A., you know, who I was with at the time, and she was a country singer. And so I was doing session work. I was playing guitar on people's recordings. I was just, do, you know, doing whatever I, I could to make money, playing gigs, um, and that's when I started learning how to record people and, and produce music as well. Um, so just, just essentially doing whatever I, I could. Um, long story short, that span spanned a good amount of time in terms of what I would call my, you know, the prime of my music career. Yeah. Uh, and then, uh, then I got into the software world, um, uh, 2015. Um, and, that was after I, uh, you know, I, I kind of decided I wanted to quit music for a lot of personal reasons. Mm -hmm. um, uh, did software and, and sort of applied the same logic. I was really good at it because to me, a piece of software was just like another musical artist. And uh, with the interesting, with the background in um, marketing and business that I had, um, you know, I may have faked it a little bit to get, you know, get the job as director of marketing as I was director of sales and director of marketing. <laughs> and uh, if this ever gets out there, I'm sure they probably know. <laughs> my, my, my thing was they were looking for both at the time. And I decided to tell them that I could do both in order to roll in this, both salaries together so that I could do both jobs and, and collect a bigger check. There you go. Um, the truth was, was that I never had any experience as a, uh, a digital marketing or anything like that but but the first month on the job while i was you know sort of locked in my my section of the office i was watching videos on youtube <laughs> digital marketing. You know? one way to learn right <laughs> interestingly enough and then it worked and i i did my job um successfully and and um and then from that point i became uh uh you know for the marketing and and having turned the company around that that way um, then I became chief operating officer, um, you know, sort of as a promotion um, once I had gotten the sales and everything. But then then it became about uh, making, the, you know, figuring out ways to make the company more lean and efficient uh, because at the time it was starting to bleed money uh, in other ways in other departments. So right. then got back in. <laughs> that was a, that was a, a startup type of company. And then after that, um, got back into music and the music started doing really well again. Um, but I was getting older and, um, I didn't want to tour anymore and I didn't want to, to live the, uh, I guess the de debaucherous, debaucherous lifestyle. Sure. Um, you know, just, just crazy and yeah, debauchery, debaucherous, right? <laughs> um, and, uh, and then at, at that point, then, uh, of course the pandemic comes in, um, 
completely changes my mind on a lot of things. I decided to start really kind of focus on investing. I started investing a little bit before the pandemic, but then I really got into investing. Um, and then decided to, to go back to my business plan that I had developed in college in, at Berkeley. I, I, I developed a, for an entrepreneur class. Mm. I, de- I developed a marketing plan on creating a, on, on creating a private instruction business. Ah. And so I kind of put that to work um, during the pandemic. And um, while other people were teaching guitar or drums, I decided to start teaching lessons in production, lessons about music business, lessons about you know, songwriting and publishing, basically, basically the real ways to actually make money at music. I started offering lessons in that. Um, and because I had a pretty good background in technology, uh, a lot of, um, you know, I have people of all ages, like a lot of adults who are, who are, uh, you know, well-established producers and engineers, but they were used to the more traditional methods of analog and, and in studios and had no idea about remote desktop software or things like zoom and, and so I was getting paid to basically teach people how to do that as well. So I was a IT support guy and a music <laughs> all rolled into one. That's awesome. That did really well. Investments, you know, investments. <laughs> I mean, I think we I think we all know how that's going right yeah, now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, but then you know, then I also got into uh, getting involved with other companies, um, utilizing my my. Um, uh, sales executive and marketing executive background um, and to my current company uh, where I'm today pipe dream industries um, doing you know heavy duty heavy duty coatings paints and um, chemical additives and you know utilizing you know carbon nanotechnologies and things like that it's awesome so that's yeah. that's kind of the the cliff notes outline version yeah that's great man like that's a uh one of the best summaries I've heard in a long time and just crunched it all down there, man. Um, what I'd like to do is pull the thread on a couple of those things, if you don't mind. So just to dive in a little bit deeper. Um, so first, right. So looking at the musician standpoint, how you, you got the guitar, you stood up, um, just really wanted to see. So was that, did you lean more towards electric or acoustic in that instance? And did you play, or do you play any other instruments? Um, Sorry, I was just had a had a really good a really good thing that I could answer that with, but then I realized it's sort of a bad joke. Um, <laughs> so I'll refrain. Um, the so I, I started playing guitar, but anybody that plays guitar will tell you that acoustic guitar, electric guitar, it's all kind of the same thing, right? Guitar is a guitar, um, and especially when you start doing it in a professional capacity, um, you got to be able to utilize both. And then in many cases, anything with strings at that point. So every so I've actually done a lot of work with a bass, you know, playing bass as I got one in the background there. Um, and essentially you, musicians, we need the money so bad that we'll just say yes. And then we'll figure it out. Right. <laughs> so I understand. You, could, you could put a, a rubber band on a mop handle and, and you know, <laughs> figure, figure out a way to make something out of There's it. Some bluegrass. Yeah. <clears throat> um, I'm sorry. What was the first, uh, you said, uh, other so, than yeah, guitar? just looking at, do you play any other instruments outside of just the, the guitar? And did you lean, it sounds like you, you didn't necessarily lean towards one or the other. It was really just whatever the band needed at that time frame and whatever, again, the genre, if it was more intimate, I'm assuming it would probably be acoustic. And then if it was, you know, the, the normal pop rock, the electric. But do you play any other instruments or learn it? Did well, you learn- okay. So I guess there's two ways to sort of look at that. Um, in my, my professional career as a more of a session guitar player, a session musician, it was primarily for guitar, sometimes bass. Um, and then, you know, if it was studio work, you'd essentially show up with all of it. And then, you know, I'll lay acoustic guitar part, I'll lay an electric guitar part, I'll play a solo, I'll record a bass. Um, and that's how that worked. And even even for the live, uh, live stuff, you know, my, my job on the live end was, uh, was a little bit different. I initially got brought in as a session guitar player. But then I evolved into a musical director. So my job was I was hired by record labels to um, put together bands for artists. So a lot of times you may think that what you see is a band out there, but it turns out it's not really a band. It's a band name, but it's really one or two key players within that group. Um, usually it's the people that, that write the songs or, or control uh, you know, the financial interests or the intellectual property, like publishing and things like that. Um, so I would get brought in, hire the band that, you know, sort of fits the bill or fits the look, make sure that everybody sounds good, um, and then get them ready for touring. And then we'd go out on the road and things like that. Um, 
on the producer side of things, uh, I learned how to program drums. I learned how I, I really made use of a lot of the technology that's available. So like I would either hire people, but for me personally, um, I tend to lay a lot of the guitars and bass myself, and um, I use programs where I can kind of pseudo play the piano. <laughs> gotcha, gotcha. Uh, uh, but but you know, program the drums. Um, so in the producer capacity, I can I can turn out a finished finished product from beginning to end uh, and, and play everything myself, so to speak. Um, so did you find as the digital engineering or digital engineering, or I guess it's digital sound engineering, um, I'm assuming so like, cause you were able to dive in. It sounds like that was just a, the aptitude that you have and that capability to learn that. Have you felt, have you found it sort of hindering now, right? Cause a lot of people are talking about AI and how that may be taken away from certain graphic artists with the programs out there. Have you found that, I guess it sounds like you complement what you do now with it, but are there any, you know, musicians and artists that feel a little threatened by that coming out? Hmm, that's a good question. I mean, I think, I think everybody gets, I think everybody gets a little threatened whenever there's any sort of advancements in technology. Um, right. But, you know, from my own perspective, I always felt that what I brought to the table was, was uh, unique and significant enough um, that it never, you know, I, I guess I never got, got jealous about, um, or, or worried about things. I mean, I, I, with this, with this latest uh, wave of AI and chat GPT and, and all these other things, I'm reading and listening to a lot of uh, information about it, but I, I'm, I'm sort of reserving my judgment from, you know, making my decision one way or the other. Um, you know, a lot of it can sound scary, but I remember when people thought, you know, when computers first came out, um, that, you know, they were going to take over. And I remember when Amazon came out and every, you know, the internet and all that sort of stuff. So, right. Um, but then it makes everybody's life life easier. So right. I'm, not, I'm not quite sure. I'm not quite sure what, um, and maybe because of where I am at now, I'm, I'm not as, um, as active in the, in the, uh, the mainstream part of the commercial part of the, the record business anymore. Um, you know, I'm not, I'm not as heavily involved anymore. So I'm not, not quite sure what the day to day or, or, or what the outlook is or what the planning within the industry is. Yeah, I understand what I read, but um, I'm, I'm just not sure yet. Um, I think it's like a two camp side, right? So I haven't found a really good blend yet. Some people are just like, ah, I'm freaking out. And other people are like, wow, I can use this. Right. I mean, whether that's, and, and then some are co combining those things. I read an article and I've seen some YouTube videos, how they're actually using chat GBT verbiage in certain um, imaging AI programs. And they're using the chat GBT to provide such a lengthy and appropriate description for that program. And then they put it in the program and they're coming up with these hyper-realistic images, right? Which is great for marketing a lot of people because you don't have to go on the respective sites and go, okay, I want to click on this and click on this and pay X amount for whatever kind of image. Now I can create something that's realistic that I say, if I have a cleaning business, I can have three people cleaning a condo with a beach you know, theme or whatever else. And it populates this image for you. And now you can utilize that. So I think in the music industry, right? I'm hoping that it sounds like people are saying, hey, I can utilize these to, you know, whether it's modify or enhance music, um, whether that's the writing of notes and so on. I haven't played in that area yet. But it sounds like there's like two different camps. So, uh, you know, speaking of that, and you sort of talked lightly about it, but so how did you, or would you say it was progressive of how you really like got, went from college playing with a friend to get into the music industry? What would be considered the official music industry? How, how did that really happen for you? So that's a good question. I think my first, you know, when you, when you go to a school like Berkeley, you know, you're so surrounded by a lot of musicians. Um, I was also in a, a bigger city than, you know, I grew up in, or I went to high school in Southern New Hampshire, and then all of a sudden I'm in Boston, and there's actually places to play and, and venues. Um, so that, I wouldn't necessarily call that my first experience in the music industry per se, although in a way we were doing all the same things that anybody who gets in the industry does. Um, you know, we're trying to make our first CD and we're trying to do this and that and the other thing. But I would think that my first quote unquote industry experience was uh, would be 2001. Um, so before I graduated Berkeley, um, I started going on to these you know message boards and, and websites. Um, and I was looking for a major label. Uh, I was looking to ba basically get a gig as a guitar player uh, with a major artist or a major label band. 
And so the band at the time, 2001, 2002, so it was called, um, it was called Cinematic, and it was a band on Atlantic Records. And I remember, you know, emailing and sending whatever <laughs> you know, information and like, like any other kid out of college, like, I went to Berkeley, blah, 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 blah. blah. <laughs> and so all of a sudden I get a response back and it says, yeah, you know, it's, we'd, we'd like you to come out, you know, come out here and join the band. Um, and we, you know, we're in our major record deal and this and that and the other thing. And, uh, so, you know, I jump in my car, pack with all my gear and I, I move out <laughs> to Youngstown, Ohio <laughs> and Youngstown, Ohio. And, and I, I, I mean, I, I still remember it like it was yesterday. I get there probably like at seven in the morning and I pull up to this farmhouse, like on, in the middle of nowhere. And I was like, calling the band i said i, th I think i'm here I th I think <laughs> or in a very scary movie setting and uh <laughs> i remember i remember they said we'll be there shortly so i was waiting and this jeep like a jeep cherokee pulls up and these four dudes get out of this jeep and they look like freaking you know in excess just stepped out of the car out of this car and i was like man i freaking made it you know this is it <laughs> um and so that that was it you know the, the story after that i'll let's just say that it, it fits all the stereotypes of a rock and roll band uh including the the bitter end of it <laughs> it was about a year later after that gotcha. uh, then, it, then it took me back here or it took me back to um to uh boston um and then at that point then i got back together with another band that i was in previously and we were shopping record deals and then i remember uh i had a girlfriend and she was a country singer and she said, I got this producer in LA that's interested in me out there. And he works for this famous producer and blah, blah, blah. And long story short, I'm, I'm out in LA in 2003. And uh, luckily with a few of those immediate connections, um, things start happening. Then I hook up with the right agent who gets me all the auditions and everything for the right bands. And then I'm randomly in a bar at one night and I get approached by these, these two producers who work for one of the one of the put it this way he's one of the richest hip-hop guys on the planet right now so i ended up getting brought over to that camp and um and from there it's just all a constant blur of, <laughs> of non-stop hustle like you know because that's what it really is in the music game you're you're just trying to do anything to get money yeah you, you try I'll, I'll do this i'll do that i'll play i'm sure i'll do this i'll play this I'll, I'll manage your band for a cut. I'll try to get you gigs. I'll try to do this. And so it was just a nonstop hustle. So, so two things with that <laughs> one. So there's a, some, some good books out there and one of them being, uh, outline. What's that? What's that? It's a book. What's that? <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. You read notes, but no words. Um, so yeah, there's, there's a good book by Malcolm Gladwell called outliers. And he talks about the 10,000 hour rule right and so and a lot of people say earning your way in there's there's nothing that drops on it you might find this famous person whether it's a child or not but they put in the time and effort so it sounds like that's some of the stuff that you experienced um by not only just meeting with people but but just starting the guitar like there's a lot of good stuff i think he uses the instance in the book he talks about the beatles and where they played in some really small venues and then it just eventually got more and more um as far as popularity grew and their timing and their sinking as a band um did you witness that did you see anybody just come out like there's like let's say there's a three percent chance of someone just shooting up to the top but other than that would you say that people that want to get in the music industry there's a lot of like you said grind and hustle and and grit if you will behind the scenes well i guess hindsight's always 2020 right now that i'm 45 and looking back, um, you know, 10,000 hours seems, you know, seems like a, a small amount right? <laughs> because, because, because you, you're always growing, you're always learning and you're always, you, you know, you, you don't get to play the game if you don't show up. Um, that's the truth. So uh, with, with everything that I've done, looking back, I realized that the things that have proved most fruitful or the things that I'm, or the things that I'm still doing, um, I put in a hell of a lot of time and, and work into it. Um, a lot of my, a lot of the peers, I, I will say this without, without trying to sound jealous or, um, mean, but you know, those with money or those who, who were born here, let's say with families that are already, you know, nepotism or, um, you know, families that are well-established in entertainment or some, or, or, uh, 
the entertainment industry or, or something to that effect. Um, they definitely have a leg up in the situation. So um, they already have resources. They already have a look. So I, I have seen people move quickly, um, m you know, move quickly than most because of their, I don't know, what's the, what's the word now, privilege? Well, yeah. Because of, yeah, because of, because of their uh, privilege or whatever you want to call it. Um, but that, that is never, that doesn't guarantee the success. So the most successful people I know, um, didn't have that sort of privilege. Um, they were, they definitely were self-made most, most of the people I know. Um, so I, I think it all varies. And with that being said, also, there are a heck of a lot of really talented people. Um, so to the extent of how far I made it or you know, did I make it? Um, I think that's another thing that people have to think about. I think we're so focused on what what we see in media and the finished product and and instant gratification that we forget um, that there's a that there's a long journey and a lot you know a lot of steps along the way, right? A lot of, and a lot of failures and um, I mean even Carrie, Katy Perry, you know, I think she got dropped like from two or three previous labels prior to you know when she when she finally became successful. Yeah. So I, th I think that, uh, uh, you know, th there's just all s different varying degrees of what that is. You know, to me, the fact that I'm 45 and uh, didn't get swallowed whole and spit out by the industry and, and I can still make a living uh, playing my instruments and, um, and things like that, I, I, I feel like I've made it. Or, or died of an overdose or, you know, the stereotypical, as you said. But so something interesting that you stated before, and, and it was a great transition, was like as far as the, the connections and networking, right? So a lot of people in different businesses, they found a lot of positivity to that. Some people look down on it because it says, hey, they, they say it's unfair or like, you know, I don't have that. Um, I found that like, again, in, in other industries, you know, outside of the music industry, having connections um, and, and I'm going to use that term loosely, really. It's it's people you know. It's people that have interest in either you, your skill sets, your company skill sets. They come to a connection, and that connection has to do with fostering business. So it sounds like outside of maybe just the family privilege and everything, but you said, hey, I, I had this person. I played in this right area. Can you just talk a little bit more about the network and connections and how that sort of boosted at least um, maybe not, you know, you're not on American Idol or anything as a judge like Katy Perry, but, you know, like you said, you found your own sense of success. So can you just talk a little bit more about how you established that rapport and kept in touch with those people to leverage that network? Yeah. Okay. So I think in a way, because it probably had a lot to do with my uh, military kid upbringing, uh, <clears throat> everywhere I went, I always had to make new friends. Uh, and, and every time I finally made some friends, I, got, I had to move and I had to go make some new ones. Uh, so uh, it was pretty natural for me to, to come out to a place, not just in LA, but pretty much any place that I've ever been. And, uh, you know, make connections with a lot of people. So, uh, you know, when I first moved out here, of course, I was in my mid to late 20s and I was going out every night and, you know, going to the bars, going to the clubs, going to concerts, going to wherever I could um, and just just meeting people. Just talk. I'm very good at that. I could walk in a room and just be, hey, man, what are you doing here? Like, I, I don't have a problem with that. Um, and I'm, I have a pretty good memory and I'm, I'm pretty good at sort of sussing out uh you know, people's skill sets or, or what they do. Um, and then when I go, when I used to go back home, I would, you know, write down all these people's information and what they did. And then, uh, then I would kind of see like, if I, so you did that. So like some people would do like, if they get a business card, like I've done it before, you have to write like a little synopsis on the background. So you don't forget. So you're saying you take little quick notes of the people that you met after the, after that first meeting well, more so mental notes but what i would do is i would categorize these people so i remember i would put like business cards in like separate sections but you know these people are the musicians these people work in the record work at a record label these people um you know work in reality television so so i was really good at kind of looking at these different things and then keeping in touch with people and then somebody would say man you know i'll kind of jump into this real quick but I was at one of my bands. Uh, we were at a marketing uh, or a birthday party for these marketing executives of sponsors. And I remember um, this 
executive from a very well-known energy drink brand um, was saying, man, you know, it's too bad that they don't have a band like, they don't make a band like Van Halen anymore. And I said, well, it just so happens that I actually produced a band. Check this out. And then, so what I, what I really good was doing was recognizing different people and then bringing those people together, sort of like a broker, um, while, you know, also maintaining myself in the middle of the equation. Um, and, and that's, that's really what, I mean, even still to this day, that's what I do. It, it's just figuring out how to put pieces of the puzzle together and people together and, and looking yeah. for opportunities that can, that can get us all. So not to, it, it stinks because I'd love to use a different reference point, but <clears throat> Malcolm Gladwell, Malcolm Gladwell, he wrote a book called Blink and, and he's written Tipping Point. I think Tipping Point actually talks to people, to the definition of connectors and mavens and salesmen. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with that or not, but connectors are like putting the right people together and he uses the instance of mavens like, hey, I'm going to go to this town. And you're like, oh, go to this hotel and talk to Bob. You'll get a discount at this hotel. So I think connectors, and this is funny because it's sounding like a family trait more than just a one-off because I do the same thing, right? Like it's just, <laughs> I'm like, wait a minute, is this genetic or is this something learned? You know what I mean? But I, I think that's really important to have that skill set. So not only like for yourself and the growth, but like to bring other people together because it, because it after repetition, it becomes recognized, right? And you can start to benefit from that, whether that's monetarily or just, you know, sustainability in a business. So I think that's really important. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. So as far as like doing doing the like production stuff, right? So you're able to do the connections and here's the band and, and managing producing, which I want to talk a little bit later. But as far as like the audio engineering and the producing, was that was that a really large like transition? So I'm assuming you had some formal education, you know, with that at Berkeley, and then like as far as like getting into the the actual production side, of the audio engineering, were, were you like, holy crud? There's like, because I'm always like, man, there's like 150 switches on this thing. Like, how do I get the ear to to start to regulate all these different switches? You know, like how how does that work? So that's a good question, and I'm and this gives me a good chance to clarify. So um, I would consider myself a producer. But I wouldn't go so far as to, to give myself enough kudos to call myself an audio engineer. And the reason for that is because, I mean, yeah, I, I can engineer by today's standards to some degree, but the real audio engineers that I know actually went to school for this stuff. They actually understand sound and frequencies. And um, I mean, I, you know, I get. I get nervous when I plug <laughs> when I plug a, a quarter inch jack in anywhere because I don't know what's going to happen. So, um, you know, to all you know, I would say that I have a lot of friends that are audio engineers, and some of them are are Grammy award winning, highly acclaimed. And so, I, I would feel um, I, I wouldn't even consider myself to be in that same category to use to use my that term as an engineer for myself. Um, I have engineering credits, sure. You know, I've mixed albums, but. Um, but it, it's, it's the people that actually understand the real science of it. You know, I think those people deserve to be called the engineers. I consider myself a, a producer because I can produce, I can, I can turn out the finished product. A lot of what I do is by ear, by feel, um, you know, I'll, I'll research real engineers tips on how to, you know, to do things like EQ the low end properly of a mix or whatever. But, um, that's, that's the difference. So I didn't, I didn't study. Uh, when I like I said when I went to Berkeley at first it was performance and then I went into music business um, ironically you know most of my career success probably has more to do in terms of um, you know the writing and production and, and things that I didn't actually go to school for um, at Berkeley um, but I didn't go for like I said I, didn't, I never took one single engineering class uh, other than YouTube University <laughs> um, but you know as far as what a producer does a producer and an engineer are—they can be the same thing, you know. It could be the same person, but but there's there's two different, very different roles. All right. Now, thank you for clarifying that. I didn't know, right? I'm a music layman. I'm I'm a consumer of music, but not a. Uh... Yeah. So the producer. I mean, I guess you can kind of think about, um, you know, the equivalent because whenever I talk to people in the film industry, um, and I, it, it's it's the the director I think is more like the producer, and then you have all these other people on the team. But, um, you know, my job is to sort of, you know, see the vision or, or, or hear the vision or help develop that vision uh, for an artist or, um, or for a song or whatever. And then find the ingredients to put that together and then maybe, um, you know, I, I can't help myself, but I have a lot of creative input in, in, what, in the things I do. Um, and at the end of the day, I have a finished product. But... Um, I could do that all myself, 
Um, or like if I'm in a studio, I could hire an engineer and an engineer's job is to really understand how those things are mic'd up properly and, and, you know, what kind of compression ratios. And, you know, usually it goes something like this. Hey man, um, you know, that, that guitar is sounding a little bit too, too bright. Um, you know, I think maybe we need to bring down the high end on it or something like that. The engineer will go, okay. And then make those adjustments. Or, and then out of the 150 switches, he goes to like number 35 and 36 and then moves it. And you're like, how did you even know? <laughs> exactly. I mean, that's, 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 that's a great way of describing it. Um, yeah. you know, so to me, it's, it's kind of interesting because um, I'm, I'm sure like many, many professions, uh, you know, I can, I can figure out this and, or you could get an engineer to do it. Um, and probably nine times out of 10 um, or maybe like seven out of 10, um, having somebody that actually understands that stuff, uh, is, is probably the more, uh, or, or probably the more efficient way to do it. Yeah, I, I totally get that. Um, so it's interesting too, cause I think if I'm not mistaken, you can correct me, not only did you produce, but you didn't manage at least one band that I'm aware of. Um, so as far as the managing side goes, like, did, was that a, Hey, I was producing this and somebody got a hold of me and asked me to manage, or like, how did you step into that role? going from, you know, transitioning from musician to producer and then getting a manager. How, how did that work out for you? Well, it goes back to the, uh, the jack of all trades, the master of none thing, right? Um, I've had managers, uh, you know, in, in my artist days and, and um, but, you know, I've had to manage myself a lot as well. And I remember I, I just, because of, I'm a control freak and, and because of, uh, you know, my, I guess my, my business acumen and whatnot. Um, it just always, I just always took it upon myself to start managing the situation. Um, and the, the band that you're speaking in reference to was called Delta Rose. And they were a young rock, like, you know, teenage rock band out of Rosemead, California. Um, and I, I was here in LA and I remember I got a call from a friend who managed a nightclub and was like, you got to check these guys out. And, uh, I think initially the thought was to maybe produce some music for them. Um, and when I first met them, um, you know, I was right away, Hey, you know, you guys could really do this and you can, you know, try this. And I was helping them carry their equipment. And, oh, and, roadie. You didn't, you didn't mention the roadie part. It's the I mean, <laughs> thing you do, especially as a young manager, you know, you do what, do whatever you can to help the band. That's right. Out. That's right. So, um, and then after I produced their stuff, uh, I was just because of my label experience and because of my my experience dealing with all these other sorts of uh, of um, entities within the music industry, it just became a natural fit for me to manage them. Um, and you know, essentially, the way that the, the term manager um, so a manager technically is an advisor. So a lot of people think, oh, if I get a manager, he's going to book me shows or this or that, but um, but in California, it's illegal for a manager to actually book. You know, you, you, have to have, you have to have a license to be considered a booking agent. Wow. So, so an agent and a manager are two very separate things. Um, but a manager is that sort of person that you trust along with you, along, you know, along your career. So what I did for Delta Rose was I helped Delta Rose find booking agents. I helped Delta Rose find financial managers. Um, I helped them, you know, in terms of negotiating their, their, uh, sponsorship agreements and things in that and and i just made sure that everything ran smoothly and that i could try to steer them away from bad people and and try to give them the best advice uh and you know like best. don't throw tvs out of the hotel window you know like... <laughs> or, or, or or go to the hotel management and say hey look you know here's you know here's a few hundred bucks and right <laughs> look the other way look there well it's interesting you said that i didn't know that right and and again consuming music even through uh, movies, like you mentioned earlier, it's usually like one person, right? Like it's always one person, the manager's on the phone, coming in the room with the band. Okay, guys, I just booked you a gig over at like the Blue Night Shade Lounge or whatever, you know, it's like, they never talk to like two different people. It's always like one person. So I, I find that like super interesting. Well, I had no idea about that. That's a, uh, and this kind of goes back to what I was saying earlier about um, people's perception of things in the media and the instant gratification that they're looking for. So a lot of times, um, you know, one of the things I always talk about is <laughs> if you look at some of these classic rock bands that you that you used to like back in the day, 
I don't want to name any band because I really love this band, but let's just put it this way. These dudes look like ugly old dudes on, on their album covers, you know, but their songs are so freaking good. And I always joke about the fact that, well, the reason it was so good is because they had to play their whole entire lives to become these ugly men to make this this good music. <laughs> but now everything is sort of, you know, it's like McDonald's, you know, or fast food. Um, you know, you turn this thing out and then you throw a 16-year-old uh, boy or girl and or whatever now and make them half naked. And then it's like ready for sale, you know. And yeah. these and these people can't even play instruments they can't perform live not all of them but you know yeah a good majority and so um i forgot what was what, what, why did i go off they, my they've done a good job hiring the the audio engine. oh right right yeah, well what i was saying was um you know so people a lot of the younger people they don't realize that there's actually a team and all these things that sort of go into place to this have they had the experience of actually doing this for a number of years um, they, they might understand how those parts work. But I, what's funny to me now is every young artist, you know, I still get approached. Um, yeah, I've had several clients and I've worked for management companies since Delta Rose. And um, But I can think of like in the last, you know, several years, every young person that comes up to me and is like, I want you to manage me. Okay, do you know what that means? Yeah, just like make things happen. Okay, like what? <laughs> Like, well, can you get me gigs? Well, no, you know a manager can't get gigs, right? And you're like, huh? Well, it's against the law. In fact, if you look at any contract, it'll say it. It'll say it. So you don't even know what a manager does. Well, my job is to advise you. My job is not to get you gigs, you know? And then it's like, all right, well, I'm going to find somebody else who can get me gigs. Okay, well, you got to get an agent. But guess what? An agent won't get you gigs because the agents only make their money on the, you know, you know, on the 10% of the gig that they book. So if you're nobody, no one's going to be your agent because you're not making any money. You know? So, so you know, the problem with the younger generation, which it, it, and it's also our problem too, is like, you know, I find myself, you know, saying, Oh, you know, the younger generation, but the truth is, is that I'm not mad at them. It's just, it's just what they know. Yeah. But, um, but what I see as a big problem is that uh, everything is so sensationalized and, and overhyped and, and it looks so instant and they're, they're getting disappointed when they figure out that it's not, um, that it's not instant. There's a lot. I watched of a really good documentary about Alanis Morissette the other day. Um, and I didn't realize she started as a kid. I had zero idea. And unfortunately she had some, some trauma that she experienced in the industry growing up. And that's what some of her later songs represented or reflected. And it was like striking because like growing up, listening to songs, you're singing along. And then you hear behind the scenes, the behind the stories and why they got to where they are and how they produced and how they sort of, you know, she ran with her own thing. And it's like, wow, man, like it's, it's striking. You, now you, you listen to every word a lot differently and you understand the story behind that. And it's a huge representation. And I, like you said, it's interesting because I go back like Justin Timberlake, right? From the Mickey Mouse Club and Miley Cyrus and all these people that started younger, Christina Aguilera, and then how they progressed up. And now, like you said, in my opinion, again, a layman from the music industry side of the house, just a consumer is you see these younger folks, whether they're teenagers, young adults, and some of them are shooting up. And then you see people, people clawing to get there. Like just like, how do I get there? They're trying and they're doing some, you know, unsightly things or whatever to try to get there. But it, to to know, like you said, there is a team. There's a team behind that. There's a team behind everything, the digital marketing side to get people to be aware so you can get an agent and a manager and everything. I mean, there's all these things leading up to it. And then, like you said before, too, is that that musicality that people have is not what it used to be either. You know, sometimes it is the um, what do they call it? It's the it factor. And that doesn't necessarily always equate to I play good music, which I think is interesting as they start showing these, you know, shows like The Voice and so on. We have a local person here, um, Jared Herzog, I believe his name is, and he he went on The Voice and he's from, you know, the, the Floridian area that I that I'm in. And um it's interesting, right? So he doesn't really talk too much. Like you said, there's a lot of people that probably do NDAs and all that stuff when they sign those documents going on the shows, but it's neat to have someone, right? And now it's cool because he plays at one of our local breweries. So it's neat to like go there and he was on Team John Legend and you get to like experience that. So that's a pretty cool thing uh just to to witness. But again, like the pool of people, and you always hear it even on those shows, they go through a whole like screening process before they even get onto the show i mean it's it's there's so much that happens prior to that yeah that's another thing i mean it's 
you know, the, I mean, I blame a lot of these shows as well because, um, you know, these American idols and, and the voice and all that, to me, I, I, I believe that they have no interest in the actual um, contestants or the people trying to make it. And um, though some have become successful, um, by and large, most haven't. And all these shows, in my opinion, are used to prop up the judges' own personal careers. Um, and that's why, you you know, I mean, look at all the judges. The judges are the famous ones, right? And the judges always ha are releasing new material. Well, you know, can you tell me the last person who won American Idol is? Can you tell me the last, you know? So that's another, I mean, that's that's one of the reasons why I want, wanted to get out of the music business and really focus in terms of my, le my you know, I call it my lesson business, but a lot of what that is is also explaining to uh, to younger people the dangers um, you know because the one thing you know in my opinion that hasn't changed about the music industry is that it's still the shady you know I mean there's a lot of good people in there but um, but at the top you know show me show me one uh, promo shot of a, of a girl under 18 that's not you know hypersexualized or, yep. or, or, or male, a young man for that matter. Um, and the way that they're making them tour, you know, 300 days out of the year until where they're having nervous breakdowns and yep. stuff. So to, so to me, uh, the music industry is, is probably one of, you know, one of the most, if not the most toxic, um, toxic businesses. Thanks for watching and listening part one of this interview with my cousin, Billy. Get ready, part two coming soon.